So we're, we're going to continue into to chapter 5 to, to verse 11, which is natural as we go through this. You'll see why. But the main point for us this morning is exactly what I talked about with the kids. The gospel unites and sin divides. The gospel unites us. We've, we talked back even into chapter 2 about how um, the, the early church had everything in common. They were, they were caring for one another's needs. They were sacrificially giving and, and uh, sharing amongst one another. We talked about how um, there are certain policies that the government may put in to try and uh, take your possessions and give them. And that looks Christ-like, but really what it does is it takes away this act of worship, which is so beautiful that we see in chapter 2 and then in chapter 4. And we see all throughout Scripture that, that we are to be cheerful givers. We are to be sacrificial official givers um, and there's a purpose to this it says that there was not a needy person among them and it was because the church was aware of one another's needs it doesn't say that there was an abundance of wealthy people because God desires that all of his people prosper but what it tells us is that God's people took care of one another and it even overflowed into the community non-believers all around the world have been blessed by the church one of the worst things to do is to actually attack God's people because we are called to care for not just each other, but the world. So the gospel unites, but sin divides. The first piece of application I want to look at, we're going to break this up into two sections. The first part being here, wrapping up chapter 4 and then into chapter 5. But the first part is the gospel brings understanding and awareness. So the reason the gospel unites is because the gospel brings understanding and awareness that we would not have without this saving grace found in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we see this here, just starting out here in, in, in verse 32, and Luke gives us this blessing. He's not just recording historical events, but he takes moments to pause and give us this overall view of the church gives us this overall view of the health of the early church and the believers and what was going on. And it's almost like if, if you all ever watch uh, sports, you see people that are sitting up in these, these boxes, right? And they're looking down at the field and they have the overall view of what's going on. Now, you can be a coach on the sideline and maybe you all have had the blessing of, of sitting close to the sideline. I've gotten that once and I envy those who get to sit close. My dad, we were going to Ohio State game one time and he said, you're going to be sitting up there we're going to be down here at the 45-yard line. And I was like, what? And he said, you can see everything better up there. And I'm like, yeah, but you get the, I know. So anyways, they, they get the view and they get to see the, the plays kind of transform and they see the blockers going and, and making their blocks if you're into to football. And, and soccer, you get to see the, the plays kind of happening and, and uh, people getting open, the attackers getting open or defenders uh, breaking back. You get to see everything. And this is one of those moments that Luke lets us step back and look at the early church and how the gospel is bringing understanding and awareness to people who were once far from Christ, now living and acting like Christ Jesus. Verse 32, Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything and common. Now we hit on this back in, in chapter 2, verse 44, right? We, we get a look of the big picture of the early church, that they had everything in common. Uh, chapter 2, verse 44 hits on this. It does not mean that they had all of the same interests, right? Uh, that football and soccer analogy might have gone over everybody's head in here because we have different interests, right? I, I love hockey, but I'm learning that I can't really go with any hockey illustrations in here because we have some different interests. 
But the one thing that brings us together and unites us in a way that we can never be divided if indeed we stick to it is the Gospel. That Jesus is saving His people uh, from different corners and pockets of the world, but if we met up with brothers and sisters from Asia this morning or from South America, that when we gather together around God's Word, we are very much having all things in common because we are united around this which nothing can divide us by. And we see that this Gospel message that saves is bringing them understanding and awareness. Now we know that the number had grown to about 8,000 people, so we know that if they are going to have all things in common, it must be something supernatural going on, such as the Gospel. It says that they are of one heart and soul. And it changes their idea, it changes their understanding, it changes their perspective on their belongings. Look at what it says. No one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. Now imagine me coming over and, and you're like, here's the keys of my house, just come over whenever. Literally any time or day of the night, you can just come over. My house isn't mine. I'm paying $1,000 a month on a mortgage, but my house isn't mine. Say that with a smile on your face, right? But it's changing their perspective that they understand that all things that have been given to them were given to them by God. It was an act of grace. It's an act of God's mercy bestowing His grace upon us. Grace upon grace. That the very fact that we have a job to be able to provide for our family is an act of God's grace. And it's changing their understanding. It's changing their perspective. This Gospel is. Not their flesh, not their own understanding, but the Gospel is transforming God's people. To the point that everything that they have is no longer theirs. They don't see it as theirs but they're willing to give it up. I've given you guys a story before of, of asking our pastor back in West Virginia when we lived there. We were getting a piece of furniture. He said, take my keys to the truck. I said, you don't want to come help me? He's like, no. He's like, I don't want to help you, but you can use my truck. He said, just make sure you bring it back. If you've got money to put gas in it, cool. If not, it's fine. It was mind-blowing to me that he would give me his truck. It was more mind-blowing that he wouldn't help, but that wasn't going to get me anywhere that day. I said, I'll take the truck and, and whatever. Which... Side note, rabbit trail, I let him go pick something up for me one time, a, a couch, and it didn't make it to our house, and he doesn't know where it flew off, so um, best I don't ask for his help, just his truck anyways. But they were, they're teaching us something here. Not that, not that what you have isn't yours, but to change your perspective that Jesus has given you everything, so we must use it, and I mean must, sacrificially use the thing that, things that God has given us to glorify His name through caring for the needs of our brothers and sisters in Christ. And it continues on here. Verse 33, And with great power the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great, what church? Grace was upon them. And great grace. So the apostles continue teaching, and it says with great power, the very thing that nearly just got them killed. Remember, Peter and John, we go back into to earlier in chapter 4. We've been in here for three weeks, right? It's been a long time just here in chapter 4. But we see them go before the Sanhedrin because they had professed faith in Jesus. They've been teaching Jesus. As Archer said earlier, they, they talked about, um, or they healed the man right outside of the beautiful gate. And then they're taken before the council because they're preaching and teaching the resurrection of Jesus, which was denied by uh, the religious loss of the Sanhedrin. And they continue going on. The believers, they, they're released. 
The believers pray for the same boldness that Peter and John had showed. And here we are now. They continue teaching this with great power. There's nothing that's going to stop the Gospel from going forward. And we should be messengers of this. Remember, they pray for this boldness knowing that God's sovereign, that God has a plan, that God's going to protect. And if they're martyrs, then it may God be glorified in their martyrdom. But nothing was going to stop this Gospel message from going forward. And we've talked about this. It's been an ongoing thing to beat it into our heads that, that the Gospel cannot be separated from the resurrection. That Jesus didn't simply die on the cross, but that He, he was buried and He was raised again. And we too, in Christ and Christ in us, will defeat death in the grave. Not on our own, not by our own power, not by our own doing, but because of Jesus who lives in us. And that's the good news that, that was not being missed by the early church and shouldn't be missed by us this morning. That their understanding and their awareness is changing. Their understanding of the resurrection, their understanding of their belongings is all changing because Jesus is being put into perspective, which is the reason we exist as a church. And verse 34 gives us the result. The result of an, a new understanding of the resurrection that Jesus sacrificially gave His life that their possessions are no longer their own because Jesus has given us everything, then verse 34 tells us that there was not a needy person among them for as many as were owners of land, lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold. And they laid at the apostles' feet and it was distributed to each as any had need. So there's no longer a needy person and this is a beautiful uh picture back to 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 god's um command really back in or promise in deuteronomy 15 4 which if one of you bigs would go ahead and get a bible out and bring me up deuteronomy 15 4 you guys work on sword drills all the time in your class let's see it bring me deuteronomy 15 4 one of you kiddos i thought joy was going to have it she comes out with her little pigtails and i'm like oh she's going to bring me the bible that he's training her up. Deuteronomy 15.4. Parents, you can help your kiddos too. That's not a problem. That's not cheating. Maylee asked me before I came up to preach, she said, which verses are you going to go ahead and be in? Get me turned there. She was ready for it. All right. Lincoln. Deuteronomy 15.4. All right, buddy. Let's see. Deuteronomy 15.4 says this. But there will be no poor among you, for the Lord will bless you in the land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance to possess. All right, here you go. Hang, hang tight just one second, Lincoln. You know the drill. You helped out. I'll help you out, all right? There you go. You take whatever you want. So God gives this, this promise that, that there would not be any poor or any needy. Now, again... Let's be reminded because there's this gospel, this false gospel going out that, that God desires for you to prosper and, and do well and, and be rich and be wealthy and be healthy all the time. And we just we know that that's not true from Scripture. But what he does say here, which is a blessing from the church, that the church is carrying forth this very promise that when we are united around the gospel, that there's no needy person among us. And needy being, I, I, I can't. I can't put food on my table. I can't take care of my basic needs, right? Don't hear this verse and, and come asking the pastors for this brand new Lexus or Mercedes. It's not what it's saying. 
but that we as a church family, because of the gospel, because of this new understanding and this new awareness, because of the gospel and through the gospel, we would care for one another in such a sacrificial way that there's no one needy among us and God is glorified through that. The early church gives us this beautiful picture and we're going to get to it. Sin ended up dividing, right? But, but what we're seeing here is first that the Gospel is bringing this new understanding and this new awareness that is sacrificial and supernatural and only done, again, because a few chapters back, the Spirit has been poured out to all believers to dwell inside of them. And it's changing everything. And then they lay it down at the apostles' feet and it was distributed to each as any had Need Now, this laying at the feet of the apostles is a sign of submission. They're trusting the apostolic office just like today we trust our pastors, right? When, when we read through the Scriptures, we believe in an elder-governed model, but you look at what the early church did without any specific writing, without any specific command that they had to lay it at the apostles' feet, but we read that there was this submission that they trusted. Hey, we are a church family. We're going to lay this at your feet. You apostles are doing this great work. You're leading us. You're teaching us. We trust you to distribute these proceeds as any need comes about. We trust this. This is a beautiful sign of submission here in the early church. Uh, Hebrews 13, 17 should be... Is that one on there, Matt? Yep, cool. Awesome. It says, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them... Don't be. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. So the author of Hebrews also gives us this understanding that we are to, to trust in our leaders because our leaders are supposed to be leading us in the gospel. So we as a church family are, are trusting this process, being changed by the gospel, being given a new understanding and being given new awareness and, and being given jobs in the ministry. That we aren't just giving, hey, pastor, here's all our tithes and offerings. Do, it as, do with it as you have need. Go evangelize, go do all this. Meanwhile, we're stepping out of the picture and never going to get involved in the ministry. We get a better understanding as we continue through the New Testament that we're all called to the work of ministry. This is just a sign of submission to the leaders of the early church. And it's beautiful how united and changed they were by this gospel message. And then we get this picture which is going to contrast that of chapter 5. We begin, this is our first picture of Barnabas, which we'll read several times through Acts. We'll read about him. So you have Joseph, who's called Barnabas. He gets this new name. He gets this nickname. Right? Nicknames mean a lot. We're, we're playing volleyball last night, and one of the kids is, is walking by. He's got his Miami Dolphins hat on. He looks like Hollywood. And one of the adults was like, hey, Hollywood, can you get the ball? And you could just see it. Like it, it just clicked with him. It resonated. Now, imagine being um, Joseph. And you get this new name, Barnabas, which means son of encouragement. Name changing was huge in the Old Testament. This is a practice in, in God's Word that is, is big because it, it represents who you are. And a challenge would be, what would your nickname be? Would it represent your allegiance to God or would it represent something that isn't quite Christ-honoring? But again, let's look at verse 37. Learn about Barnabas. He sold the field that belonged to him, which Levites usually didn't have land anyways, he sold the field that belonged to him and brought the money, and he also laid it at the apostles' feet. So he gives us this, this 
um, sign of submission that the early church is, is submitting to this teaching. They're submitting to the authority. And they are going and doing life and being on mission together. We see this time and time again. But the issue is, while the gospel brings understanding and awareness, while the gospel unites us, sin divides. And part number two is that our sin brings confusion and judgment. So to contrast that the gospel brings understanding and awareness, our sin brings confusion it distorts the gospel, right? It, it takes Jesus and, and distorts him. It takes him out of perspective. And it also brings judgment. The wages of sin is what, church? Death. It brings judgment upon ourselves. We are born sinners, so we're born opposed and in rebellion against God and needing Him to intervene in our lives. So it brings judgment, but it also brings confusion. Chapter 5, verse 1. Again, in contrast, look at the early church. They're selling their possessions and they're giving uh, to all as any have need, uh, laying it at the feet of the apostles, submitting to their authority, and they're caring for one another. They're united by the gospel. But a man named Ananias and his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property, and with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. First problem here. He's, he's withholding back. Now the issue isn't here that, that he's keeping some of his proceeds. The, the issue is that he's lying. We're going to get into that. He's saying, hey guys, they sold all their land. You, you look at Barnabas, he sold all of his land. He gave you all the money. Here you go, we sold our land too. Here's all the money. While withholding some, and it, what it's doing is it, it's taking away from the power of the Spirit that is working amongst them. This is a sacrificial thing that's going on. And nothing, look, look, look at what um, Luke goes on to write, that what, what Peter said in verse 3. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. Peter says, you could have sold it and did whatever you wanted with it, brother. You could have kept it all. You could have kept some of it. After you sold it, was it not at your disposal? While it was still your land, was it not yours? Peter almost goes against what was, and he's not, goes against what was happening early on where their awareness of, of their possessions had changed, that it was no longer theirs. But he's telling them, it's yours. God gave it to you. Do with it as you please. But what you did is you let Satan fill your heart to lie not to man, but to God. Satan had filled his heart. Now, how do we, how do we combat Satan filling our heart? we got to be alert. Hey kiddos, bigs, can someone bring me 1 Peter 5.8? It's our last sword drill. 1 Peter 5.8. How do we combat Satan filling our heart? We know that the enemy is, is prowling around, seeking to devour us, to take us down, to mislead us. You go all the way back into Genesis and the, the deception in the garden. It was like that. Oh, well played. Well played. You take whatever you want. 
He's running slides today, and he knew that 1 Peter 5.8 was on the screen. You, yep, take what you want. Well, well played. You didn't help him with that? Well done. I've been outplayed. 1 Peter 5.8 says, Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Look at what Peter writes. The same Peter who's witnessing this in the early church, look at what he writes to us, writes for us and and to a different audience, but he says, be sober-minded, be watchful. Why? Because your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour Seeking someone to devour. So Peter is saying that we need to be watchful. We need to be alert. We need to be spirit-filled. And the issue here is that their sin is now affecting the entire body. Church, if we begin to understand that, that, that what they're doing, this deception, is creeping into the church. It's crept in. We see it time and time again. That's why we need a healthy body. That's why we need everybody doing their part in the church so that we can combat this together. We see it creeping in and that our sin affects the church. Like our church family. And I know that's hurtful even for me to hear, oh, my sin doesn't affect the church. It does. And especially when it's exposed. Look at, look at even in our, our Southern Baptist Convention. We see leaders, they, they are raised up and we hear about something come out about their life and things that they're doing in that moment. Uh, church planters, missionaries, we see it. And it's the devil getting in and trying to distract us and tear down the mission so that God would not be glorified. But we should stay focused, we should be watchful, we should hold each other accountable, and we should also be aware that indeed, our church family is affected by our sin. Those here this morning, we are affected by one another's sin. Whether we realize it or not. It creeps in, it changes the way that we live and we act and we interact with those around us. Even if our sin doesn't directly affect them, it does because our sin is changing our attitude on who God is. Charles Spurgeon says this. He said, too many think lightly of sin and therefore think lightly of the Savior. Church, our view of sin needs to change. It needs to be so awful that we want nothing to do with it. That we want to see our brothers and sisters and even ourselves sanctified and conformed into the likeness of Christ. But our perspective on sin very much represents our perspective on Jesus. If we believe our sin nailed our Savior to the cross, then I don't think we would go on sinning the way that we continue to do. And we look at at, um, Ananias and his wife, Sapphira, and and they see the early church, and we're supposed to encourage one another to good works, but look at what they do. They're trying to keep with the Joneses here while lying. Peter says, while it remained unsold, it was yours. It was your disposal. After it was sold, was it not your disposal? Why is it you've contrived this deed in your hearts? You've not lied to man but to God. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. And great, what church? Fear came upon all who heard of it. The young men rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. After an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter said to her, Tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, yes, for so much. But Peter said to her, how is it that you have agreed together to test the Spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. Immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. 
When the young men came in, they found her dead, and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all those, um, and upon all who heard of these things. Ladies, submit to your husband does not mean submit to their sin. That was her time to repent, but she was going down for this deed that she also knew about, and she did not see the need to change. Ananias and Sapphira missed the gospel which unites. They gave in to their sin which was dividing, was causing confusion. And she had an opportunity watching her, her husband breathe his last. And she gives in yes for so much. He says, why? Why have, have, why have you all decided to test the Spirit of the Lord? How is it that you have agreed together to do this? And, and we can sit here and we can think, Oh man, how, how awful it is that they, they breathe their last. Where's the grace? Where's the grace? Well, Sapphira for sure had the opportunity to correct what had happened and repent. Ananias had the same opportunity. And then we also have to ask ourselves, our sin pinned Jesus to the cross. Our sin was taken by our Savior, and if we truly believe that, we should not continue to give in because our sin separates us from God it causes division between us and God. Our sin should cast us into eternity of separation and torment apart from God. Mine included, this isn't me preaching at you, but telling us that God's Word tells us that we do not deserve any of the grace that He's bestowed. And once we've tasted it, to go back, once you've tasted the extra toasty Cheez-Its and you go back, it's like a, an abomination for the church to continue to give in to sin. It's crazy. But we're getting ready to take communion this morning, church. And if we've tasted and seen that the Lord is good, we delight in His Word, we've been saved by the Gospel then our sin should not cause us to cower and, and fear and, and hunker down and we're just so, such horrible people. It should cause and drive a healthy fear that leads us to repentance. Communion as we approach the table and we see the bread reminded that Jesus' body was broken for us and we see the juice that Jesus' blood was shed for us, that we would remember the sacrifice that allows us to draw near to the table with a clean heart and a renewed soul, knowing that Jesus stands at the right hand of the Father interceding for us on our behalf, that we can approach the table repenting, confronting our sin. So this morning, don't, don't sit in your seat and say, I'm not good enough. We know that we aren't. That's what grace is. We know that we couldn't earn it. Grace and mercy has been shown to the church, to those who believe. And those who have seen it and tasted it and feel it, experience that joy this morning, confront your sin and come to the table and remember what the Lord did for you. Nelson, if you'd go ahead and come back up. Michelle and um, Matt, if you all would uh, come up here as well and administer communion for us this morning. I, I just want to, to remind us of this, that, that we know the Gospel. If indeed you've believed in it, you've repented and believed in the Gospel message. We know that the Gospel unites. We know that our sin divides us. 
But we should come to the table confronting our sin, being reminded of what Jesus did. Being reminded of what Jesus has has done on our behalf. Our view of sin should change. We should live in in fear of God, not fear of, of being struck down like Ananias, but being reminded that God is holy, that God is is not wrong in doing these things, but that He's given us opportunity. And as believers today, we can can approach the table being uh, reminded that Christ has paid that price. And if you don't know Jesus today, I tell you to to stay back in your seat, and I'll tell you why here in just a second, and, and ask you to repent of your sin and believe in the gospel. Confess with your mouth and believe in your heart that Jesus is Lord, that He died on the cross, and that God raised Him from the dead.